Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com slash party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage. And you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month, Beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer 52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to the Political Party. I hope this episode finds you well. Today's guest is Douglas Ross, the new leader of the Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party and the MP for Murray. Um, There's so much to talk to Douglas about because he effectively leads a double life. As well as being a politician, he is also an elite referee. Um, He is a referee's assistant. He gives the full title uh, in the interview. But he does proper big games. He's refereed in the Champions League. It's incredible that he's able to do both things. Um, so we talk about that. Um, it has got him into a little bit of trouble in the past, so we do talk about that. But so much, there's so much fascinating stuff that goes along with being a referee, as well as being a politician at the same time. If fans recognise you as a Tory MP and old firm Derby, I can't imagine it's the most positive experience. But Douglas absolutely loves doing it, and that, that really comes through. And of course... Being leader of the Scottish Tories doesn't just come with carrying the fortunes of of that party in that particular part of the UK. It comes with the added mantle um, of being placed on his shoulders of trying to keep the UK together at all as an entity. So we talk about that as well. Um, About his background, he comes from a rural background, raised as a young farmer. He's led this incredible, in in a weird way, triple life. Um, and he's only, the, I mean, he's one of those people that makes you feel like a total underachiever because I think he's the same age as me, 37. And you think he's been a, an elite referee, uh, n- not just a politician, now a leader of a party, a farmer, a dairy farmer. Um, so we talk about all that sort of stuff and, and being the leader of the Scots Tories at a time like this, taking over from Jackson Carlaw. Um, but obviously as a football fan. I, I, I do indulge, uh, I do indulge in a, quite a lot of football chat in here. Um, I, one of the things, as far as I'm aware, Douglas hasn't done is publish a book. So that is one thing that I have done that that, that perhaps he hasn't. And um, today, they arrived. Some of them arrived at my flat, and it's the first time I've held it, and it's just absolutely incredible um, to to see it and to hold it as a, as a real thing. You know, I sat here and wrote it in my spare room during lockdown. Then all of a sudden, it's here as a hardback, and it's got me on the front of it. It feels very real. So. To those of you, to the many of you that have already bought it, thank you so much. If you haven't, um, you can pre-order a signed copy from Blackwell's. I've put a link to that uh, in the blurb. Um, and it's a memoir. It's, it's about how I got into politics. Some um, terribly indiscreet stories about my time working for the Labour Party. Some behind-the-scenes stuff from the podcast that I don't think I've ever told anyone before. And just from other political events that I've witnessed. Um, and as you would imagine... As you'd gather from my politics, the last few years haven't been the easiest. So, um, a, a bit of um, a bit of tonic, perhaps, um, for for those dark days that we've we've all endured together. Um, but I've tried to make it as funny as possible. So, whatever your politics, um, if you listen to the show, it should be right up your street. Um, and I'm launching it. Uh, you know, ordinarily I'd have done a, a book launch. You know, I like to imagine it would have been a swanky 
event with champagne. It probably would have just been me in the pub with a pint of lager and a, and a bag of crisps. But any sort of um, physical launch, sadly, is not possible. So I'm doing a virtual launch with Alistair Campbell, an online event on the 13th of October at 7pm. You can get tickets to that. You can either buy a ticket that includes a signed book or if you've already bought the book, uh, or if you don't want to buy the book, you can just buy a ticket to, to the launch event. Um, and for once... It would be Alistair Campbell interviewing me and not the other way around. He's always he always misbehaves when I'm interviewing him, so I might repay the favour, but uh, you'll have to tune in to see. Um, anyway, that is enough selfish, rampant promotion. I was meant to say rampant, selfish promotion. Rampant self-promotion. Oh, man, I can't even get it right when I'm getting it wrong, obviously. I'm all over the place. I should leave you in the hands of Douglas Ross. And one thing I did manage to get right was the pronunciation of his constituency, Murray. You have, I mean, that's the most important thing in my life, Matt. And I see to ministers who are responding to questions, it's Murray as in hurry. If I hear Murray, I'm going to go back and have a point of order, complain to the speaker. I have written threatening letters to PPSs to say, don't allow your minister or secretary to say Murray or anything like that. Murray as in hurry, and I'm proud of that. Well, I have your predecessor in the seat to thank for that, Angus Robertson, who's been on this show, and he uh, effectively taught me how to pronounce it. I mean... Yeah. It must have been, um, oh, you've been around politics for a while, but beating Angus Robertson in Murray at the 2017 general election must have been an incredible uh, experience, really. I know politics is volatile. I know Scottish politics is especially volatile. But really, in Westminster, he was the biggest star that the SNP had. They're the dominant force in Scottish politics. Did it, I mean, did you ever think at any point you were going to beat him? I did in that campaign, but I'd obviously stood against him twice before in 2010 and 2015. And uh, I, I'd been on the other side of it. I knew what it was like walking up to the stage when the returning officer had, had given us the private results. So uh, I had experienced it before, but the campaign was totally different. There was just a different feel about it. However, I was saying to myself, my family and, and everyone in the team, remember, he's got a majority of over 9,000. You know, we might be doing really well. It feels really positive. But to overturn a majority of 9,000, 9,065, I think it was, to someone who was getting a lot of attention because he was the leader at Westminster at the time, I was saying, you know, we're going to do well, but let's just be uh, ready for a strong, positive second place and, and work on that. And then we've got this strange thing. I don't know how other MPs uh, or candidates do it, but in Murray, it's very rare for the candidate to be at the, the town hall, Elgin Town Hall, at 10 o'clock. So I went home, uh, sat with Crystal, watched the exit poll, and I thought, that's got the SNP down at, I think it was 34. And I thought, there's a good chance I might be in here. And that was the first time I said to Crystal, look, I might be elected here. To which she said, well, if you're elected, I want a new kitchen. So it ended up costing me a new <laughs> kitchen, um, which I did follow through on that pledge. But we sat around for a few hours and I was getting intermittent messages because my phone wasn't working. So I wasn't hearing from people who were doing the telling. So I had no idea. And then I walked in and all the cameras started clicking. And I thought, they're not taking a lot of pictures of the guy that's just come second. So um, that was when I really knew it was it was going well. And uh, yeah, it was a really proud moment as well. I'm from Murray, you know, lived there my whole life. Uh, my mum and dad were, were there as county agents watching the, the count happening. Um, I always say dad's proudest moment that day was he got on Twitter. He's, he's never been on Twitter before. But my mum, she's a, she a retired now, but she was a dinner lady, a school cook. And she always puts on a big hamper of sandwiches, homemade sausage rolls. And BBC had tweeted Douglas Ross's family have taken a, a picnic for everyone. And that was dad's proudest moment was getting on <laughs> BBC's Twitter because he was sat there with mum's picnic. It's a very genteel introduction for him to the world of social media. Um, hope he realises it's not always that pleasant. Well, it's not. And he's now joined Facebook. So I know he's been on Facebook because I'll get about 20 notifications. Sandy Ross has liked blah, 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 blah. And he always, obviously just goes on every few days and likes all my posts. Not sure what they're actually saying or doing. But I just know he's been back in the computer when I see that many notifications all at once. It's a great constituency to represent. Uh, and this is something, again, I have your predecessor to thank for telling me this. I think, is it half or around half of all the whiskey distilleries yep. are, are more, in Scotland are in Murray? More than half of all Scotch whiskey distilleries are based in Murray. So oh, no other uh, constituency, and they're spread more than that, but we've got greater than half of all Scotch whiskey distilleries. So, I mean, every, you know, MPs go back to their constituencies at the weekend. They, they fly or get the train up from Westminster, wherever they're going. 
I mean, it must be great for you. You're, you're only back for a couple of days and almost certainly you're going to have to visit a distillery. Uh, absolutely. And uh, I mean, the, there's such a big range. We've got Macallan, which uh, is the newest distillery in Murray. And at the time was the most expensive distillery built anywhere in the world. I mean, oh, it's wow. really fantastic design. Actually, I was a councillor in Murray before I got elected to, to Holyrood and then Westminster. And I was on the planning committee. I chaired the planning committee that approved the plans for the, the new Macallan distillery. And then I was there as MP touring it touring around it to, to very small family-run new distilleries as well. I mean, it is great. And uh, again, I, I don't want to keep mentioning my dad, but he really loves whiskey. I, I like it. I drink it. But you always get a bottle wherever you go. So he's great. looking at my Twitter or Facebook page and knowing, right, I'm going to get a bottle of Macallum for my Christmas this year because Douglas has been for a visit there. So It must be great for re-gifting, actually, being the MP for Murray. You must, that's Christmas sorted. You don't have to spend a penny. Exactly. None of these distilleries are going to give me anything now because they just see it as me being cheap at Christmas and not uh, actually drinking the stuff all by myself. Anyway. Um, so as well as being a Member of Parliament, um, and we'll come on to the leadership, which is the main thing to talk about, really. You're also a referee uh, and, and a referee's assistant. And not this isn't just Sunday League stuff. This is Premier League, Scottish Premier League games. How did you get into that? because I am the worst footballer in the world. I have no ability, no coordination. I can't kick a ball. I can't catch a ball. I can't throw a ball. When we train normally out with these circumstances, referees meet up on a Tuesday night all over Scotland in their different areas. They train for an hour and a half, an hour and, a half and have a game of five-a-sides at the end. I keep on training and running around the pitch because I just can't play. Oh, and I thought, how, how do I get involved in a game I love, I'm passionate about, if I can't play it. So I thought, I was reading the, the P&J, our local paper, the Press and Journal, and there was a wee tiny column that says, looking for referee recruits. And I just phoned up the number almost 20 years ago now, it seems incredible. Man. And went along to the course at Elgin High School, did the course and started off on the amateur pitches. I remember my first ever game in Murray, because I went to agricultural college, so I actually did my two games that you need to be registered down in Ayrshire. But my first game back at home was in Forest, which is the town I grew up closest to. It was a Forest and Nairn welfare match that ended 11-0. And I've still got the observer's report, because they send people along just see how you're getting on, Paul Warmington. And he said, Mr. Ross missed six offsides. He trotted through the match and sometimes broke into a jog. Um, I was a bit heavier then than I am now. And uh, I thought, this is it. This isn't for me. I've done the course, but got 11-0, six goals uh, offside that I should have detected. Um, and here I am, 20-odd years later, doing Scottish Premiership matches, 7-0 firm matches, Champions League, Europa League, World Cup qualifiers, games in Saudi Arabia. Um, and probably most of those spectators watching me at all those games, like, yeah, they were the most accurate ever report was that one that said he wasn't very good at the, right at the very beginning. And how hard has it been since your, your political career has sort of risen and you've grown in prominence? Some football fans must recognise you. Oh, they do. I, I had a very um, public decision in one of my old firm matches. Uh, I advised the, the referee, Willie Collum, to send off a Celtic player in an old firm match that was played at Ibrox. 50% uh, of Glasgow agreed with my decision and 50% disagreed. Um, again, there's observers at the game, and I think most neutral observers of the game would say there was a... a an offensive violent conduct and I was correct to tell the referee. I shouted it down my communication system three times. So there's all this footage of me shouting, red card, red card, red card. Uh, and people remember that. They, they don't remember the decision was correct. They remember I was getting a Celtic player sent off. And I just happened to be on a visit a couple of weeks ago um, with David Mandel and his son, Oliver Mandel, who's a, a member of the Scottish Parliament in the uh, in. Uh, the borders of Scotland and we're going around this factory and this lady they were making PPE equipment and this lady was maybe in her mid to late 60s and she's just at her sewing machine and we walk past she goes there's bloody red card just passed and this old you know mature lady uh, is a strong oh. supporter of Celtic Football Club and what three years two and a half years after I made that decision she recognized me in this factory walk around and didn't let me forget that she uh, was not in agreement with my decision that day. That's such a great nickname, Red Card, though, because that's not much. Yellow Card would make you sound a bit soft, like Red Card makes you sound hard. That's it. And if people don't know, they might think you've been sent off. It might be like a sort of <laughs> Vinnie Jones type. I was just thinking of Vinnie Jones, actually. So, yeah. 
um, sort of moniker. But during games, do people shout, you Tory bastard, Ross, that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, what I find is it's more during the warm-up because you can hear a bit more then. They're really personal comments at that stage. During an actual match, you've got your earpiece in, there's a noise of the crowd, but I always do runs with the referees and then you go to your line and do a bit of running on your own, a bit of stretching next to the kind of um, the perimeter and that's when they, they really have a go at me. And like I say, red card is, is one thing that they keep bringing up. Um, my politics, uh, my parentage, uh, the fact that I, I can't have a, a mother and father and have been born in wedlock because I'm a, a Tory in Scotland. So a lot of that comes up. A lot of it's in good nature. Uh, yeah. and there's, there's a bit of it, not so much, but you just take it. You take the rough with the smooth. But you never get any sp- specific advice. They're never like, Douglas, you've got to stop a no-deal Brexit. <laughs> we don't I, want I, a hard border. <laughs> I do get Brexit comments. That, that comes in uh, quite a bit. Quite often the managers are quite funny about it. I remember I was doing a, a premiership game and I wouldn't name the manager, but he's, he's a difficult guy to have in the dugouts. And it wasn't a premiership game, it was a championship game, so there's no fourth official. So I had the dugout side and this guy, I was just absolutely fed up with him. So I just wouldn't respond to him. And he kept nip, nip, nipping and he goes, I've old Tory, you know, you've got to speak to me, I'm a Tory. <laughs> So I was a wee bit nicer to him, but not much because he's annoyed me for about 87 minutes of the match up until that point. It'd be quite funny, actually, if any of the players or managers were constituents of yours, you know, during a game. Hey, linesman, linesman, what about that planning dispute I wrote to you about? Well, again, not not an actual decision during a game, but for a while I was the only senior listed official in, in Murray and Bank, which is my referee association. So um, when a senior club requested a pitch inspection, I was always the one that had to do it. So we've got Elgin City, Borough Briggs uh, in Murray, and I I still remember this. I got asked to go down and do a pitch inspection on a Friday afternoon, and the SFA phoned me up and they said, look, Elgin City have got about 50 people here. They're desperate to get the game on. They just need you to give the green light or say it's off. And I walked into the ground and I thought, I've just lost 50 votes here because I know that pitch is unplayable. They've had this big community effort. The local paper, this time the Northern Scot, was there. And I thought, there's, there's my next election just gone because I'm about to tell all these people who have been working for hours to get this game on that it's off and I'm going to be that bloody Tory referee has ruined our weekend because we can't play Stenhouse Muir or whoever it was supposed to be. But do you worry about that? I mean, I'm sure you don't. I'm sure in the game you're absolutely engrossed and you're looking to see if there's daylight or whatever the rule is on offside these days but in an old firm you know when it's so such a big deal like a red card I mean these days would you think oh man you know not only have I got to take any blowback as a as a as an official I've also got to I'm an MP and I've never lived this down no um for the the really simple reason there is just no time you know, if people say to me, look at that decision, you've got your flag up really quickly and you're shouting red cards straight away. Yeah, that's what you have to do. You've got to make an instant decision based on what's in front of you. And that's why, you know, I think trying to influence a game as a referee, people who think a referee's deliberately going out against their team, the time it would take you to think that's the actual decision it should be. Here's how I can screw over this team by giving a totally different decision. The play's moved on. You know, it's in the other half by that stage. So no, I know I have to. I'm there for ninety minutes to do a job, and it lets me block out everything else for that hour and a half. And is there is there a connection? Do you think between being a conservative and, and being a a referee or, or or a linesman or a referee's assistant or whatever they're called? Is there a kind of logic to that? A kind of a believe in the rules based order and a sense of fair play? Uh, no, I think there's just uh, a logic that I don't like popular <laughs> things. My, my wife's also a police officer, so I always said, with me being a politician, her a police officer and me being a referee, you know, we're not the most popular couple to invite over for dinner or, or to be seen going out with and that. So, uh, but, you know, I do think there are some similarities in terms of, you know, you do have to make tough decisions sometimes. You've got to have conviction. You've got to know what you're doing, etc. But uh, the fact that I'm the only one that mixes being a politician and uh, an assistant referee at the highest level tells you it's not a, a common path that politicians would take. Certainly doesn't make you much more popular anyway. Would you, would you want to be a referee? Or, or, and does every referee's assistant want to be a referee? Or do you, are you effectively specialise now as a, as a referee's assistant? So we are specialised. We are SAR, Specialist Assistant Referee is our terminology. 
and it probably annoys me just behind people not being able to pronounce Murray, is people that ask me, when are you going to become a referee? As if somehow I'm a substandard. Now, one of my uh, good friends up in, in Scotland and a referee, Bobby Madden, he did a podcast and he calls us assistants his little helpers. Uh, and he does it in, in a jokey way. But we are doing a very specialised job. So we are helping the referee. I wouldn't go as far as Bobby does and call us all little helpers. But it's a route you can go. You can either choose to be a, a referee and focus on that. And I could have done that. But at the stage I was moving through the senior list in Scotland, um, I'm not sure I was a good enough referee to get to the category one level. And I certainly wasn't good enough or at that stage even young enough to think I would then go on to refereeing old firm matches, Edinburgh derbies, even in the Premiership or now the European and international matches I've done. So I got put down the specialist assistant route. I was the first actually SAR development official in Scotland. They, they created this new category and I was the first one to uh, be made that category. I then got extra tuition uh, through UEFA. They've got a really good programme called CORE, um, Centre of Refereeing Excellence. And then I became an international official because I chose a number of years ago, based on the comments that I'd had from supervisors and, and others, try out the assistant referee route, and I've never looked back. I've gone to some amazing countries, gone all over the world, done top games that, you know, people pay, you know, good money to go and watch these games, and I've got a front row seat. That A game I did in Barcelona Olympiacos, Messi scored his 50th European wow. that day, and I was at the halfway line watching this screamer going into the back of the net, thinking, God, you know, how far have I come from that 11-0 match uh, (laughs) to being in the new camp watching Messi score his 50th goal? That is so cool because I sort of imagined the old firm would be the highlight, but I'm mildly obsessed with the old firm and I'm uh, desperate to go to one. But um, I I mean, seeing the greatest player on earth and being part of that and having your name attached to that history in in the books forever and to be on the pitch. Did you get close to Messi at all? Um, I, I'm going to very quickly keep speaking and show you something that I shouldn't. But oh God! <laughs> when a politician says that, it could get very dangerous. I got. <gasps> wow! Look at that. For for the viewers that can't see that, it's a picture of you in your referee's outfit shaking hands with Lionel Messi. Is that on canvas? It's huge. So <laughs> this is the problem I now have. This photograph was taken in 2017 and I was on the game. It's a game I got into a bit of trouble for because I missed Parliament and just, I'm sorry, all my answers are too long, so just tell me to No, start. not at all. No, the detail's great. So you go to the, the country the day before, so we flew out to Barcelona uh, and I got it all approved that I, you know, I was allowed to miss Parliament. It was the first time I'd done it. Um, there wasn't supposed to be votes, etc. I got into trouble and at the end of the story, I agreed never to officiate matches when Parliament was sitting again. However, I was out there, we just landed in Barcelona and I started to get messages from journalists. Are you now missing Parliament to do a Champions League game? And I thought, I might be in a bit of trouble here, but I'd already landed, there's nothing I could do. The next day we were out for lunch, you always go for some pasta in a a local restaurant the day day off the game, just to get some carbs into you before you have a rest before the match. And my phone really started going buzzing the whole time, so I quickly looked at it the Prime Minister has just been asked about you because an SNP politician took a red card into the chamber and said, <laughs> he's to me at the time, will you show this red card to the Honourable Member for Murray when he finally gets back from running the line at uh, Barcelona? So that was all happening. My wife was getting asked about it at home. My parents were seeing it in the newspaper. The only positive I can take out of all that, because it was a, it was a bad episode and I, I made a mistake, was there was a lot of cameras on me. So normally the referee gets one or two pictures in, in these games and no one else does. I got all these great pictures of me great. and Messi, me and Iniesta. And I remember my good friend and refereeing, Frankie Connor, we, we'd gone for a meal after the game with the Observer and you have a debrief. And he looked at that picture on his phone and his face just went white. And he goes, you absolute <laughs> bee. You have got the best picture ever. I can't believe this. So he was so jealous. And he said to me, you must get that on a really big canvas in your office. And it's just sat there for three years and they've given me a new office here in, in Parliament now I've become leader. And it's, it's a big office. So I thought, right, I'm going to order this picture finally. And I didn't quite work out the dimensions. And I thought, we'll just go for the biggest one possible. And now I'm not allowed to put it up because people say it looks like I'm some dictator in these countries. <laughs> that everyone has to bow to the leader's picture as he walks Scotland. <laughs> because it's actually bigger than life size. You might not believe this in my 
detractors will say it's not possible to get a bigger head than I actually do, but my head and shoulders are physically about a size and a half of the size they, they should be. So that's how big the canvas is. My wife said I'm not allowed to take it home. I'm not allowed to put it up in the office. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. But I want to share it because it's such a great picture. It's a, I'm so pleased you've had that done because so many people do these cool things in life. And being an MP is cool enough. Being leader of a party is... Certainly refereeing a Champions League game for Barcelona when Messi and Iniesta and players of that calibre on the pitch is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And I think sometimes people are, too, people are too flippant, aren't they? People just go, oh, well, it was just... And then you get to later life and think, oh, I've had that photo on a laptop somewhere. What? Yeah. That, I'm so pleased. <laughs> it's so cool that you've had it to the biggest possible size. <laughs> so I, I love it, oh, but no one else does. So I don't know what I'm going to do with it now. So. Well, give it... Maybe, maybe sign it. <laughs> and then try and get Messi to sign it and auction it off for charity or something and then get maybe get the next size down for your, for your I, office I think I'll have to go a couple of sizes down anyway so in, in terms of I mean, I've realised this is a lot of football chat but I guess there's a kind of political dimension to it but with the old firms because that's something as someone who supports an English team Nottingham Forest who aren't you know haven't had a great start or a great end to last season either the old firm I think for English football fans is definitely the one element of Scottish football that's always transfixed us, is there's nothing in England like the old firm. So even though the leagues have sort of diverged a bit, um, Rangers-Celtic is just the biggest rivalry anywhere near where any of us live. It's just on another level. <laughs> to have refereed those games, I mean, they just look like... I, I'm desperate to... I want to I do the three. I want to do Ibrox, Hamden and, and Parkhead and see, see it in all its incarnations. What's it like to try and officiate those games? Well, first of all, just when you say all three, again, Frankie Connor, who I mentioned earlier, he and I were, were teamed up for a lot uh, of time together with, with Willie Collum and, and then we did games with, with other referees. And in one season, and I think this is the only time it's happened, Frankie and I did three old firm matches in the same season at each of the three venues. Brilliant. So we'd done Hamden, we did Ibrox and we did Celtic Park. Um, so that's something I'm, I'm proud of and, and all seven that I've done. And it's the build-up because the appointments are normally made on a Tuesday ahead of the, the Saturday game. So as soon as that gets announced, when I did my first one, I was still a councillor, so it didn't get much coverage. I then did one uh, as an MSP and an MP. So I know my appointment just by my Twitter feed before I even see the email coming through from the SFA because I get uh, a lot of people telling me there's that Tory MP's just been appointed to the old firm act. So you can imagine what that's like. So you've got the build-up through the week. Again, at training, you know, the guys are, are keen to, to speak about it. I mean, these are games I, I watched, you know, as a youngster and, and getting involved in refereeing, watching guys doing old firm matches, never thinking I would do it myself. And then the one thing that people quite often don't believe is it just goes in an instant. You, you blow the whistle or the referee blows the whistle to start the game and then it's finished. It just yeah. goes past so quickly because the intensity is there for 90 minutes. Other premiership games, some international games, English premiership games, there can be lulls and then it you know, rises again and then it goes down again. The intensity is just so ferocious for the 90 minutes in an old firm match. Uh, you've got the build-up driving up to the ground wherever you're going. I remember my first one was at Hamden with Craig Thompson in a semi-final. Rangers won it on penalties. And I was driving to Hamden and I just saw these green and white scarves and, and blue and uh, red and white. And I thought, this is like two hours before the game. You know, I've got to be here early. I mean, it's just a whole day that people uh, dedicate to these matches and that. And uh, yeah, Was that the one weird. where it went, to, it went to extra time, then they both scored an extra time. Barry Mackay scored that amazing goal for Rangers. And yeah. then Hibs beat Rangers in the final. I uh, think. No, no, not, no, not that one. No, that was 2016, that one. Yeah, that so was my incredible. My first one was 2015. I think because the, the Hibs Rangers one I remember because I had Kilmarnock in the Scottish Premiership playoff the following day and we all agreed it was going to be a quiet day compared to what had happened at Hamden the day before I'm, I mean it's just it, it's, the thing is with an old firm is it, it very rarely doesn't deliver there's always some sort of sending off whether it's Craig Brown and Alfredo Morelos I mean these are people that I watch on TV the rest of us watch on TV you must see up close and personal not Craig Brown, Scott Brown, I meant. Sorry. I was going to say, poor Papa Brune, we call him, the former Scotland international <laughs> manager and, and Aberdeen coach. Gosh, I don't think he's said a bad word to anyone and you're saying he's getting sent off against Morelis in an old firm match. 
He, that was it. Scott Brown wound up Morelos, didn't he, at the end of one not yeah. so long ago. And then Stephen Gerrard and Neil Lennon and stuff like that. I mean, it must be... These are big names. These are big stars. I mean, do you think being a politician, you're kind of operating in... From, you know, for me, politics and football are like the two things that I'm completely obsessed with. And you're on the front line of both of them. It must be amazing. You know, I'm, I'm doing two things that I absolutely love. You know, I, I love politics, not not so, not so just for the, the frontline involvement and getting involved in debates, but, you know, the kind of chewy kind of um, answer that a lot of people get. I, I do enjoy the, the local stuff, helping people. Uh, and in football, you know, I'm as happy running the line at New Elgin v Bishop Mill when they were both, uh, they're no longer uh, clubs that are both operating anymore. But, you know, that was the big derby I used to referee when I was a junior referee. Uh, I remember in the Highland League, my first one, that there was a police uh, presence at the game was Bucky v Devon Vale because there are two fishing communities and they, there was fights expected. So I've gone from that with the, the local police walking around the pitch just to make sure nothing happens to a mass police operation that's in place when the old firm meet. Um, j- just going back to, to some of the international matches I did, um, I went to Saudi Arabia two days after the 2015 general election. So wow. I got beaten uh, in, on the Thursday night, count on... Friday morning, and on the Saturday, I left to go to Saudi Arabia. And it was the Riyadh derby. So it was basically their old firm derby. And it was so um, difficult to officiate, they brought in foreign officials. And it was a winner-takes-all take, situation as well, because, you know, the, the points difference between the two teams. In the end, there was controversy. It was roasting hot. The referee, John Beaton, got headbutted and lost one of his teeth. <gasps> So, you know, people do speak about the old firm derby, but there are other derbies around the world that I've also been involved in. Just like refereeing in Scotland. Well, maybe it's just games I'm involved in that there's lots of fights or controversy. (laughs) I've done done the derbies in Riyadh and in in Glasgow. Do you you have any ambitions left in refereeing? Do you think, oh, I'd love to do a World Cup final or a Scottish Cup, you know, an FA Cup final or the Euros or anything like that? I mean, I'd love to have done that. I was on the, the list as the reserve assistant referee for Scotland in 2016 to go to, to the Euros. Um, and I wasn't needed. So the day that the guys all left, to, so I did all the courses with them. I did all the training and that was great just to see what these, a lot of them professional referees, we're not in Scotland, uh, get to train and, and do day in, day out. And just to be part of that tournament was really good. I still walk around with my Euro 2016 bag, hoping that someone might notice that and, and ask me about it, but they never do. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd like to be involved in that and, and the big tournaments. Um, I, there's still some grounds I'd, I'd really love to go to the Bernabeu. I, I did a, a reserve match when uh, I was doing youth league games, Real Madrid v Copenhagen, uh, and that was played in the afternoon at the training pitch, and we got to go to the main game with VIP uh, hospitality at night, oh, and I great. just thought, wow, what's it going to be like walking out there? Probably in a similar way, other young referees who were at the new Camp that night that I walked out for Barcelona Olympiacos were thinking one day I might get to be on the pitch with these players in the pool team as well. So I've done a lot. There's there's more I'd like to do. Just on Scottish Cup finals, here I am with a long answer again. So apologies. But I'm the only assistant referee in Scotland ever to be appointed to two Scottish Cup finals. So in England, apart from this year when there was an exemption made because of COVID, you only, all officials only ever do one FA Cup final. It's the pinnacle of your career and you only do it once. In Scotland, because we've got fewer referees, the referees often do two, three or four of them, but assistant referees, because there's more of us, normally only ever do one. And I did one in 2015, which was Cali v Falkirk. And I thought in 2015, wow, you know, I'm, I'm still relatively young uh, and I've, I've reached the top I can get to in domestic officiating. And I was delighted to then get the appointment in 2018 to, to do it again. And I was so proud and I said to people, you know, this never happens, but no one remembers I'm the official that's now done two Scottish Cup finals running the line. All they remember is in about the 73rd minute, the ball was trickling towards me and I tripped over my own feet and fell flat on my face at oh. it. Uniting the Celtic and Motherwell fans, the only thing they agreed on all afternoon was what a complete fool I'd made of myself. And of course, the support I got from my five other colleagues over the communication system was not what I was hoping for, as they just laughed for the remainder of the match. Oh, man. Um, I don't want to overdwell on football, but just just on refereeing, it's a big thing. A lot of football fans will listen to this. Would you welcome VAR in Scotland? 
Absolutely. I would take it in an instant, and every single official would. Again, going back to the games I do, I was in Bayern Munich last year for a Champions League game, and I disallowed a goal. Uh, it was nil-nil at the time, 23 minutes, I think, uh, and I was with Bobby Madden. He was the referee, and it was my first game with VAR, and there was Dutch officials, so they're checking it. And, and normally, I make a decision like that midway through the match. I don't know till we go in at half time and, and we see footage or at the end of the game if I'm right or not. You know instantly if you're correct or not. You know that your decision isn't ultimately going to put a team out or cost a team. And I think you relax more because you know ultimately you can go on to your next decision absolutely clear in your mind that you're right. The only thing I thought about the Dutch VERs that night, they were very good. But just the way they spoke, and I speak very fast, they slow everything down to make sure we could understand what they were saying. And they say, Bobby, we have reviewed the decision. I thought, yeah, just tell us. Bobby, the decision. And it was like, you know, waiting at a wedding for people to say there's no lawful impediment for this couple to get here. I'm like, just tell me, am I right or not? And Bobby, the goal has correctly been disallowed for offside. You can restart with an indirect free kick. And it, it was the longest 30 seconds of my life, but it was worthwhile knowing that the goal I disallowed in the Champions League match was correctly disallowed. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, it's, I mean, it's so good for parliamentarians, for, for politicians to have like a, it's not, does it class as a second job? I suppose it's almost like a different life, but it's a different experience. It's kind of like another thing for you to be doing. The two obviously do clash sometimes, not just with the Barcelona game, but, but in August on VJ day, um, when you officiated the, the Kilmarnock St. Johnston game, um, which you later apologized for and donated your fee to help for heroes. Um, Obviously, you'd not long become leader at that point. I mean, was that, was that something you think in retrospect you, you should have seen coming as a, as a, as a controversy? A hundred percent. I should have seen it coming as, as a local MP. You know, I do a lot with the, the military in Murray. We've got RAF Lossy Mouth, Ken Loss Barracks. Um, and it's just, I don't know why. I, and I, I can't, I'm not, and I wouldn't blame anyone else. It's all on my shoulders. When I accepted the game, I was just an MP that the leadership wasn't even thought of at that stage. But even as an MP, I should have seen that as an issue, and I didn't. And all I, all I can do is kick myself about it hundreds of times, bang my head against the wall, think, why did I do that? And, and apologise, hold my hands up, not try and say, you know, there's this or that or, or anything else, and accept I made a mistake and, and move on. And, you know, I've, I've made a few mistakes. I'll make more mistakes, but I'll try and learn from them. Um, so it's, it's basically, it's, it's a strong talking to. Maybe a yellow next time, but, 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 but not a straight red. If there's another time, then it'll be a straight red without any shadow of a doubt. It's something I always say about refereeing. I review decisions a lot. You know, I'll, I'll watch my game back. My wife is still really having a go at me just now because our planner is full of games that I've pressed the keep button on from like four or five years ago. She says, why do you still have this game like Hibs v Motherwell from three or four seasons ago, I says, well, there are some decisions there that I want to check, you know, just look at them again and see if I've, I've progressed since then. So I review an awful lot. I, and in the same way, like politics, I have gone back over that decision a hundred times, kicking myself, thinking, where should I have seen these things? Why why didn't I do that? And, and try and improve myself as a result of that. So both in politics and in, in football, I think you've, you've got to review your decisions and you've got to make sure you don't make the same mistakes again. You need some sort of video. You need VJALR for uh, for that decision, perhaps. Crap puns aside. Um, but do you do the same with with politics? I mean, not that you would rewatch your own speeches on the BBC Parliament channel and save them on your Sky yeah, Plus box. No, 
But do you, do you apply the same rule to politics? Do you, does, that, does that referee's mind kind of help in a way? It, it helps, uh, and, and it's also a bit of a curse, because I'm extremely self-critical, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, I look at things, and, and my team or, or people watching will say, oh, you did really well in that debate today. I says, yeah, but I tripped over a word three minutes in. And they're like, well, we didn't notice that. I says, well, I did. And if I'm noticing it, it means that, that we've got to improve it. And people will be watching this thinking, God, he's been an MP now for three years and he still can't string a sentence together. So maybe my, my analysis and, and my reviews aren't that good. But no, I, I think you've always got to try and improve. And if you think, you know, you've suddenly delivered the best ever speech in Parliament and you can't do any better, then you shouldn't turn up because we can always do better. I mean, we're in such a, a great theatre walking into the, the House of Commons to think the privilege we've got to be in there, we should always be thinking we can do better get a better speech next time, a better line next time, captivate an audience. Uh, and that's what people want to see from politics. I, I've got a slight thing. I, I don't like using notes uh, and, and certainly not a, a pre-prepared scripted speech. And, and for some people, that's right. But I think if you want a real debate, you've got to be able to, to move off what you're planning to say to respond to something else. And I really like that. It comes back to my, I come from farming background. My dad was a farm worker and I grew up on a farm. And uh, in Young Farmers, we did a lot of speech making and I learned some of the skills then. Again, I think of my old speech making coaches, Ian and Ethel Gordon, they must hear me umming and saying, I say you know a lot and I'll probably listen back to this and, and count the number of times I say you know and um. But there's things I learned then that, that really improve speech making, things like that. And I want to continue using what they taught me all those years ago uh, when we were in speech making competitions. So Young Farmers, is that like a kind of Young Conservatives thing? Uh, well, it's it's across the country, so I mean, you've never really. Uh, I'm a city a, boy. A very sheltered life, if you don't know about young <laughs> farmers. But no, it's a uh, it's a strong tradition. Certainly in Scotland, Scottish Association of Young Farmers Clubs. But I know there's um, JCs and such like all over the country. And yeah, it's. I mean, when you live in a, a rural setting, um, it's not so easy to, to go into town. Uh, for a night out or something and, and you normally smell a cow crap and things like that <laughs> I always remember I don't know why I was thinking about this the other day but when we lived in the farm we we're just in a tight cottage and there's a, a thing called a slurry spreader which is, is spreading cow muck on the fields and if mum was ever doing washing and hanging out, out our school uniform on the day they were spreading slurry you knew you were going to smell like that for, for the rest of the week at school so at least if you went out with the young farmers people knew why you smelled like that when you went into town into forest academy people were just thinking what is wrong with that guy what's that smell he's got so. is that kind of what politicized you then the young farmers was that a kind of almost like a, a, a you know having a forum sharing ideas with other people your same age was that is that what kind of woke you up to politics? I wouldn't say that woke me up to politics because at that stage and even until I got elected in 2007 all I wanted to do in life was uh, be in farming um, and very particular dairy farming and even more particular Holstein black and white dairy cattle um, you know I, I had it honed down to that jerseys Ayrshire's a fine beef cattle no arable I wasn't interested in but milking pedigree Holstein cows was all I was interested in from a very young age but young farmers did definitely develop my speech making and, and I got more confident standing in front of a, an audience and, and delivering my message and trying to win an argument. But it was probably, I went to agricultural college for, for four years and got a bit more into discussions and arguments then. Uh, and then probably the politics came in after I left college and, and was working. Um, but, that, but that sort of, that experience, uh, it, I mean, it sounds almost like it was a sort of quasi-debating society, or have I misunderstood that? No, that, that's exactly right. And, I mean, we do so many different things. There's seed and root shows where you took along your tatties and carrots and judged two of the best tatties and carrots. I never had very good tatties and carrots, so I thought, I'm not going to win the seed and root show. Uh, uh, stop judging I like, so there's stop judging competitions, but I knew I could never win at a high level in stock judging because I knew a good dairy cow and a good Holstein, but I didn't know a good sheep or a good Charlie. So I thought, you know, is there anything in Young Farmers I might actually win? And I thought, let's try speech making. And we did. We ended up winning the National Young Farmers Speech Making Championship in 2000. So that was, that was kind of, that's where you honed your political skills. Yep, yep. And certainly um, some of uh, how, how I construct a speech and, and very much uh, at junior speech making you could read out a speech at senior speech making you got your topic 15 minutes before you went on stage so you're under pressure you don't know what the questions are going to be and then you go straight up onto stage that sounds like most, it sounds like a nightmare for most people it's like a cheese dream 
particularly when you've been up at two in the morning milking the cows to go to the competition to know you've got to go back in the afternoon to milk the cows again. Oh boy. So now you're, uh, you're leader of the Scottish uh, Conservative and Unionist Party um, since August following the resignation of Jackson Carlaw, who I always felt was a kind of underrated performer. I, I went to FMQs for the first time during the general election campaign in December and thought he was such an impressive performer in the chamber. Um, yeah, yeah. Ja- I mean, Jackson, he, he really is good at that. I mean, he's been in the party for 40-odd years, worked his way through, he, a real trooper with the uh, grassroots party. He was, uh, you know, an MSP deputy leader or health spokesperson. I supported him in his, his two leadership bids. He was someone I, I'm still uh, very close to and can learn from. And again, a, a good debater and someone who could inject a bit of humour into into proceedings, not inappropriately, but actually sometimes we need a bit of humour in terms of what we're saying as well, and he was really good at that. Were you surprised by his resignation? Uh, I think I was in terms of the fact that, you know, it's, it's a big decision to take, to, to look at your own performance and say, hold up your hands, I'm maybe not the best person to, to take the party where I want the party to go to. And as I say, it's probably because of Jackson's four decades seeped in the history of the Scottish Conservatives that he thought his ultimate sacrifice um, was justified if it meant the, the party could go beyond where he felt he could take us. And I, I know I, I follow you on Twitter, obviously, Matt, and you know, you've know you got your own frustrations that maybe Richard Leonard hasn't looked at himself in the same way. And, and a number of people in, in Scottish Labour are probably thinking the same thing. Well, I was going to come on to that because, you know, one of, the, one of the mantles placed on your shoulder isn't just the leadership and the fortunes of the, of the Scottish Tories, but also the union itself. I mean, do you, is that a ludicrous pressure to put on one person or does that come with being leader of the Scottish Tories? Well, it definitely comes with being leader of the, the Scottish Conservatives because, and, and this is my party political moment and in, in going into my pre-prepared scripts, but, you know, genuinely, we are the only party that can stop the SNP now. We did it back in 2016. Uh, I think more and more people can see that. Uh, you know, the once great Labour Party in Scotland, where they had almost every single seat, is long gone. Um, you know, they used to stand up for the union, stand up for Scotland, and, and just look at where they are now. So people, traditional Labour voters, who strongly support Scotland's place in the United Kingdom, no longer feel at home in the Labour Party, but some have come across directly to us. Um, and that's why I want to build this coalition and this support around the Scottish Conservatives and us as strongest defenders of Scotland's place in the United Kingdom. Is it fair to say, though, however well you do as as leader of the Scottish Tories, in terms of keeping Scotland in the union, it it would be, again, a kind of cross-party effort, regardless of a referendum, that it has to have that sort of broad uh, approach to to defeat uh, the sort of campaign for independence. And that requires having at least a functioning Scottish Labour Party. I mean, in a way... It's in your interests to have Labour more competitive. Yeah, I think you're right that it has to be cross-party support and, and people of no party affiliation at all because we all fought that 2014 referendum thinking it was going to be once in a generation. It was only six years ago. We've just passed the six-year anniversary. And again, we were able to unite a coalition of people, Labour supporters, Liberal Democrats, Conservatives, and people who just don't associate themselves with any of the political parties who, who do associate themselves as as patriotic Scots and Brits who want to be part of the, the Union and the United Kingdom. And I hope we don't have to do that again because I thought we'd settle that argument and there are so many other things we should be focusing on right now. We're in the middle of a pandemic that is still taking people's lives and every day I look at those figures and think that's another family in mourning, they've lost someone. Do they really want their politicians to be arguing about independence and separation or do they want their politicians to be focused on getting testing uh, properly up and running, uh, getting the uh, Protect Scotland app working to an optimum. It's doing really well. We need to get more people onto it, ensuring that the NHS, if we have a second wave, which hopefully we don't, but it's capable to uh, react to that. The economy is working and getting people back into work where they can. That's where the focus should be, not on the bitter divisions of six years ago. And how do you find leading a party in Scotland but being, I mean, obviously you're based in Scotland as well, but being sort of based in London and in Scotland, does that kind of, does that alter your ability, do you think, to, to have a direct influence on the Scottish Tories? 
Uh, no, I don't think so. I think actually for, for, for a unionist, actually it shows that, you know, I'm leading the party in Scotland and I'm standing for election to the Scottish Parliament next year. But just yesterday, I was in the Chamber of the House of Commons urging the Prime Minister to continue the support from the UK government to protect uh, Scottish workers and help Scottish employers keep people uh, in employment during this next phase of restrictions that have been introduced. And I think that's a strong unionist argument that we've got two governments in Scotland and actually what we need is those two governments working together to deliver for Scotland rather than fighting with each other the whole time. But isn't the danger sometimes? I mean, I suppose it's like, you know, MPs having to deal with local councillors is that you're down in London part of the week and all your MSPs are in the chamber. And if you're not there, you know, as a leader, sometimes that, that distance can mean they start chuntering behind your back and plotting and whatnot. Well, they'll be doing that anyway. I think if we're right next door, <laughs> this is a Tory party, Matt. You know, that, that goes on the whole time. Um, do you honestly think there's no plotting going on at Westminster just because it happens to be everyone's in the same campus? Uh, yeah, fair point. You're also doing this over Zoom. So, one of the, the few benefits of this is, you know, I can stay really well connected, whether I'm in Murray with the team in Edinburgh or whether I'm in London and the team in Murray and all that kind of triangular um, connection. It works because we, we have to use uh, this technology at the moment and it's something that, that we'll be using for a, for a wee while yet, unfortunately. Just to return to the, to, to the sort of principles of refereeing, um, when Brandon Lewis accepted or admitted that the, the government was going to break the law in a, I can't remember the exact words, but it was like a specific and limited way or something like that. As a, did the referee inside you um, want to caution him? Did you sort of bristle at the thought of, of rules being broken? What I thought at the time, and I said it in the chamber, uh, when I supported the bill at second reading on the internal markets bill, was because I thought it could be improved and amended in committee stage. And I think it has been because ultimately, if the government are saying to parliament for the greater good as a safety net, we need to put this in there and should every other option break down and we have to look at what has previously been agreed to secure the Belfast agreement, the Good Friday agreement, then that will require a vote in parliament. And when I agreed at stage two, to go into committee stage, I was pretty sure the government would listen to concerns about that. But what does get lost in all this, and I understand that, and, and your question, and, and again, I've read a number of your comments on, on this bill and, and this government, what I think does get lost is that the internal market is crucial for Scotland. 545,000 jobs, not me, but the Fraser, Fraser of Allender Institute says, relies on the smooth internal market of the United Kingdom. I've got Baxter's uh, food group, soup and, and all their other products and Walker shortbread, just two of the big businesses in my money constituency that need to ensure their goods can pass to all four parts of the UK. So we need this internal market legislation. Um, I'm, I'm really hopeful. We never need the government to come back to Parliament to tell MPs why they think we need to vote for these measures. But ultimately, that's the time any rules would potentially uh, be breached and it would take the government to convince a majority of MPs to do it. Okay, it's just in the context of Brexit, and you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a supporter of Brexit. You know, but I'm used to being ruled by people that I don't vote for. You know, that's that's part of living in a democracy. But when you hear a government minister get up in Parliament and say, "Effectively, we're going to break the law," you just think, "Oh no, no, you know, not this as well." You know, your heart kind of sinks a bit. Yeah, and you know, as I say, I understand the arguments and the debate around that. I, I do think we've moved on from, from when Brandon made that um, statement in response to the urgent question through the committee stage. We've got report stage next week, but we should never lose sight of the fact that this bill, the main part of this bill, is actually about securing Scottish jobs, securing jobs across the UK and making sure our businesses can continue. Because we, Scotland, does 60% of its trade with the rest of the UK meaning we do far more trade with our friends and colleagues across the United Kingdom than we do with the rest of Europe and the rest of the world combined. Uh, there was a thing I meant to ask you about, refereeing. You, you were born in Aberdeen then, so are you an Aberdeen fan or did you never have a team? So I, I was born in Aberdeen for, for the simple reason that I was a twin. And um, back in 1983 and uh, just some, some issues my mum my had had, um, we had to be born in, in Aberdeen Royal Infirmary and in the maternity unit there. So sometimes I think, you know, I, I, I'd have preferred my birth certificate to say Dr. Grayson and Elgin, and that's where my son Alistair was born, which is a whole other story if, if you want me to quickly go through that. But I always say 
Um, to expect referees not to support any club would be ridiculous because we get involved in football because we're passionate about football. And yes, before we don that Scottish FA badge on our referee tunic, then, then we have been supporters of clubs. Uh, but it would be inappropriate to suggest that uh, <clears throat> which club I, I supported or indeed that that would then influence you later on in your career. Because as I say, whether you're an Aberdeen fan, a Celtic fan, a Rangers fan, as a referee, you can't be thinking about that when you run out to, to run the line or, or referee a match. So do you have to keep it secret? No, what you do have to do is declare if you have any direct link. So for example, one of our former Category 1 referees, father I think was the chairman of Montrose Football Club, so he never refereed uh, Montrose. I have never, until a couple of seasons ago, actually refereed Elgin City because the view was coming from Murray, you're only seeing your team. Murray's a small place, so while Glasgow referees can referee Rangers or Celtic, you can't officiate at Elgin. And that had always been the rule until uh, a Friday night last season or the season before, Elgin were playing Hibs in the Betfred Cup and I got appointed to it. I was doing Liverpool-Napoli um, in a friendly at Murrayfield on the Sunday, so it was a good weekend for me. I was doing a senior game on TV for the first time in my closest senior club at Borough Briggs, and then I was going on to do Liverpool and Napoli in a, a sellout crowd at Murrayfield. So it's all teed up to be a great weekend. And then I made the worst decision I've ever made in my career when I disallowed a Hibs goal because uh, I totally switched off. And the guy was maybe two and a half yards onside. It rebounded off the post, came back to him. And when it finally came to him, he was in an offside position. I'd switched off, put my flag up. And it was horrific. Really the worst decision I've ever made in my, in my refereeing career. So <laughs> that's the only time I've officiated in a, a senior match at my, my local senior club. How hard is it to not switch off? Um, normally it's not too hard. I mean, again, I'm not trying to make excuses, but that day, so that was a Friday night game. Normally I travel back from London on a last thing on a Thursday. I got on my EasyJet flight at Gatwick Airport and we're all sat on the runway and the pilot comes on to say, just to let you know, there's major disruption in the skies tonight. Inverness Airport closes. At this time, we're not going to be able to land. It's very unlikely that you're going to get a flight tomorrow. So please just work out for yourself what you're going to do. That's all. Wow, I've got a busy weekend ahead. I need to get home. And by sheer coincidence, the girl next to me started crying. And the girl next to her was thinking, what am I going to do? So we had a quick discussion. It turned out, having not spoken for the 15 minutes we were waiting for the flight to take off, the girl said, you wouldn't know this place called Ennis House, would you? I says, yeah, that's the farm I used to milk the cows at and where we had our wedding reception. <laughs> so she was going to be a bridesmaid at Ennis House the following day and needed to get up to Murray. And then the lady next to her was going to take her dad, who was getting cancer treatment, out of the hospital in Aberdeen, back to Fockabers. She oh, said, you'll man. never know a place called Fockabers. I says, I do. I used to be the counsellor for Fockabers Lambride. <laughs> so within about 15 minutes, these three people that had never met each other before, but had this connection about being desperate to get back to Murray, agreed to hire a car and drive overnight to go from Gatwick Airport in a hire car, travel all the way up to... Uh, Elgin Forest and uh, travel through the night. So I did all that. I then continued my constituency visits the next day. We had a big parade for the armed forces for the army in Grant Park. I had a, I was out on a site visit with BT Open Reach down potholes, filling in things for broadband. And then I went to do this live TV game. So reflectively, I should never have done the game because I was knackered and I'd done all this traveling, but I was so desperate to do the game at my local club. And I wish I hadn't, because it was a horrific decision, the worst one hopefully I'll ever make. So out of the three of you in that car, who did the driving? I did a lot of the driving. If I can say the girl who was going to be bridesmaid wasn't a particularly good flyer, and I think had enjoyed uh, some hospitality at Gatwick Airport before <laughs> she got on the flight, which was maybe why she was starting to cry as soon as the pilot said she wasn't going. So myself and the other lady did most of the driving and probably me about 60% of it. So uh, it's a long way from Gatwick to, to Murray. What's, I mean, it's almost like a sort of planes, trains and automobiles type thing. I mean, were they, did they, did, at some point in the conversation, were they like, hang on, you're a referee and a Tory MP? But I'd love if that was the case, because that would mean there was a bit of conversation, but whenever you weren't driving, you were in the back 
I'm sleeping or in the front seat sleeping. So okay, not days. only was it a long way to go, it wasn't the most, I mean, we were chatting away about certain things, but by the time we got three hours into the journey, I'd said about as much of my football chat as I thought these two ladies were going to take. And, you know, a lot of people switch off and fall asleep when I'm speaking, but particularly that late at night, driving a long way through the country, it was easier for them to at least pretend they were asleep and didn't have to listen to me. Can I quickly tell you my story about planes, trains and automobiles? When my son was born, I missed the second meaningful vote under Theresa May's government, if you remember. So I am actually the only person, I voted against her deal the first vote. I abstained in the second one because I couldn't physically be on campus to vote because even with the proxy system, strangely, you've got to apply 24 hours in advance. So I was supposed to predict my wife was going to go into labour and need it. And on the third time, I voted for it because I thought we had to get things done. So that's the scene setting. I'd voted for it three three different ways. I travelled down to London because it was a big day and there was no slips, the whips were trying to do as much as possible. I just landed at Gatwick about 8.30 in the morning and my wife said, <clears throat> between you leaving the house at six o'clock and me feeling fine, and now you've landed in Gatwick, um, I think my contra- contractions have started and I've gone oh, into labour. I thought, right, I wish you'd kind of had signs two and a half hours ago as I left. So I then had to go into Parliament to try and get a proxy from the Speaker. The rules didn't allow it. I then had to book my flights. But there was no flight I could get back to Inverness, which is our closest airport. So I had to get the train back out to Heathrow. So that was my train. A flight then up to Aberdeen. And uh, I was a, a last minute ticket on BA. And I remember I was something like row 23. And I said to the stewardess, look, I'm not looking for any favours. But just before we start our descent, can I be moved up into the business class bit? I don't want to sit there during the flight, but just so I can get off quickly. And I explained to her, and that was all fine. So I did everything possible to get to the front of the plane, to get off into the airport, where my parents had to pick me up because my car was at Inverness Airport. So my wife, as I'm in Heathrow, is saying, this is getting closer now, get on this flight. I did everything I could. Train was covered, plane was covered. The last bit of the journey was an hour and a half, 70 miles from Aberdeen Airport to Dr. Gray's. And I thought we've just got to go as quickly as possible. So I'm the first person off the plane and I see my mum and dad just through arrivals. We're ready to go. I'm like, right, let's go. Dad goes, oh, we've been sitting here 20 minutes. I'll need to go for a pee now. Oh, come on, mate. You've had 20 minutes to go for a pee. This is not the time for your bladder, which is notoriously weak, to fail yet again. (laughs) So hurry up. So we then do all that, and then they hadn't paid for their ticket. So we get to the barrier, and the ticket didn't work. I thought, I am not going to miss the birth of my first son because of the trains in London or the flight to Aberdeen. It's going to be because my dad's bladder and the fact they didn't think of prepaying their ticket. We got there with about 90 minutes to spare. Um, It was the most nerve-wracking journey uh, just trying to be there in time. So my wife puts up with a lot, but she almost did the whole thing on her own. And I, I just got there for the glory bit at the end. Oh man, but thank God you made it. I know, I know. And do you know, someone, this is another tangent, but I remember getting an email a few days later from someone reporting me to the standards commissioner because they felt it was inappropriate that for whatever good reason, being at the birth of your first child, you missed an important vote in parliament and they were reporting me for it. I was like, good luck with that, away you go. Who reported you? Do you know? I know. It was just this, this lady from an unknown email address. Oh, so it wasn't never, another MP? No, 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 no. It was, I don't think it was even a constituent. Someone that had seen on the news that, you know, one of the Scottish Tory MPs couldn't vote because he was travelling back for the birth of his first child. Most people thought, oh, you know, good luck, all the best to your family. This one bitter, twisted woman decided it was an opportunity for her to complain about me. Oh, man, you almost got cancelled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I almost got cancelled at the birth of your child. Well... Douglas, that, uh, that amazing travel story brings us to the end of our journey um, today. This has been such a treat and a real pleasure. Thank you so much. No, I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Matt. Well, there you go. Douglas Ross, the leader of the Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party. And I cannot overstate how big that print of him and Lionel Messi is. It's absolutely fair enough. If I was involved in a game Lionel Messi was playing in, I would have that photo on the wall. But his version is absolutely huge. So maybe one day, maybe both men in that photo will will sign it and it will get auctioned off for a very good cause. You probably just need a slightly smaller one for his office or home wall. Um, I know there was a lot of football chat in that, but it's... Fa- it, I would want to talk to a referee so much about what it's like anyway. 
when you're talking to an MP who's a referee, that's just like an extra layer to it. You're doing all this stuff and you're an MP. Um, which just makes it so much more fascinating. Um, you know, when MPs have these other lives, it's like with MP4 when they're kind of like in a rock band on the side. I know I'm kind of against MPs having second jobs, but if they are to have second jobs, it's cool that it's stuff like rock bands and, and referees. That's what it, That's more. It should be that MPs are only allowed cool second jobs. Uh, and then perhaps uh, it would be allowed. Um, so there you go, Douglas Ross. Um, I have put a link into the blurb for uh, a signed copy of the book, uh, a ticket for the launch event, a link to get a ticket for the launch event on the, on the 13th of October. It, it's coming very, very soon. Um, and it's so surreal to... I'm sort of looking at it now. It's so surreal to, to see the book with a quote from Tony Blair on the cover. And you would expect no less, of course. Right, um, I shall leave you to it. Have a great end of the week. Have a great weekend. And I'll see you next week. Ta-ra! up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com